this is part of the allocated time for preparation and does not substitute plenary or seminar. And this is certainly in not in lieu of a lecture. Instead, this is instead of additional required reading to save you time. For example, a 20-minute podcast is so jam-packed full of information, and I hope knowledge, that it is equivalent to about three hours of reading. You can download, stream anytime, anywhere. If you have any issues, please email me or see me. A narrative is the core of any information or influence campaign. Now, we'll discuss how narrative may be important to national security, international relations, and of course, power. The authors, the faculty, and I will make suppositions to challenge you, to challenge our thinking, to challenge popular media thinking. But of course, it's up to you to determine whether narrative is important. And if it is important, how important is it? And when might it be important? Narratives have been studied as national mythologies, as psychological constructs, ideology, sacred values, will to fight, and so-called weaponized narratives or war narratives. And we'll start by focusing on how narratives allowed civilization, allowed today's powers to exist. Thus far in SLFC, we've been introduced to Gaddis and Clausewitz and Jomini and Napoleon and Thucydides. They at least consider the hypothesis that war is politics by other means. This is actually an extremely rare and unorthodox hypothesis. Most of the world, throughout most of history, to include Greek and Roman history, inversely view politics as war by other means. We must, we must understand, I think, that going back to the 14th century BCE Egypt, 11th century BCE China, as well as Japan, Vietnam, India, and what is today Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, the entirety of the Middle East, North Africa, the Sahel, Latin America, information-focused indirect strategies are the way. They're not a sideshow. Now for the readings, we have first the Lawrence Friedman reading. Now he provides a what I would consider a dissenting view, at least here at CIC, amongst some faculty, that information and narrative should be relegated to tactics. It should be relegated to an appendix in any kind of a mission order. That it is a sideshow of a sideshow of a sideshow. He says that this is, he makes this claim because the idea is that modern weapons of war have taken the forefront, the precedent of what power relies on. Then we have the reading about Harriet Tubman. And this reading discusses the limits of power with regards to information and communications. And thirdly, we have the reading from Lepore. She maintains that narratives are actually vital to the existence of power itself. She talks about legitimacy and ideology and specifically gives the examples of people claiming natural law, that is, people in power, religious precedents, Roman law, Greek philosophy, and even ideals of liberty taken from Great Britain. Now, 
I want to take a step back for a second, and I want to look at the title of this lesson and what these words mean. So let's look at the phenomenon of power itself before we move on to information. So Robert Dahl, 1957, says, and I quote, or said, and I quote, power is the ability of A to get B to do something he or she would otherwise not do. And I go on to quote, in the case of authority, now this is authority as opposed to power, in the case of authority, B's behavior is driven by obligation, not force, but the condition is the same. B does something he or she would otherwise not do because of A's will. Joe Nye goes on to say that hard power, and I quote, is a theory that describes using military and economic means to influence the behavior or interests of political bodies. He goes on to say, soft power is a term used in international relations theory to describe the ability of a political body, such as a state, to indirectly influence the behavior or interests of other political bodies through culture or ideological means, end quote. But a warning, Robert Dahl and Joe Nye are certainly quoted a lot when you talk about information warfare and information power, but we have to understand that their ideas are in the minority throughout most of history, throughout most of the world. And there's certainly nothing new but their ideas have always been minority ideas. It is only in some Western countries very recently that we find this oversimplified black and white dichotomy, this false dichotomy, that there is hard power and then there's soft power and that they should be considered separately or one or the other should be used given a situation or one or the other should be weighed more given a situation. Instead, we should consider power power that's dynamic, it's situational, it's relative, as the ability to control or indirectly influence whatever the balance and mix of psychological or physical means is necessary. So let's look at the effect we want, take a step backwards, and then decide what are we going to focus on indirectly uh, for approaches and what are we going to focus on directly. Now to move on to information, especially information in the form of narrative. As I said with Friedman, there are those that believe information is a sideshow. That is a force multiplier for minor powers and non-state actors. It allows them to box above their weight class. Maybe it's helpful at operational and tactical levels, but these scholars will warn that at regional and world powers should only use information strategies sparingly. That while intelligence gathering and strategic influence may be inexpensive and seem to be with little risk for minor powers, for great powers, that is regional powers, global powers, they may risk their very very uh, position if they gain a reputation of dishonesty or conducting influence towards people that don't want to be influenced, undue influence. And I quote from Friedman, once warfare moved to mass armies with complex organizations, there would be limits to what could be achieved by means of guile. The emphasis, as he says, would be on force. Yet others suggest that information strategy in all its forms, covert and overt, open and clandestine, that they are essential even to regional and global powers. And perhaps 
It's a lost art in contemporary times. From Liddell Hart, we see that power is thought of in psychological and physical realms. And I quote, in studying the physical aspect, we must never lose sight of the psychological. And to go to the U.S. uh, US Marine Corps doctrinal publication, 1-1 Strategy, it maintains, power is sometimes material, just as often psychological in nature. And for MCDP-1 warfighting, war is a violent struggle between two hostile, independent, and irreconcilable wills. So there's an emphasis on the psychological aspects of power. Now, I want to finish off to talk about some possible myths and misconceptions about information and power that we find in the media and pop culture, we find in pop literature, books like Like War, which is considered a popular literature. Now, I'm going to try a challenge from prevailing perspectives to offer an antithesis to play the devil's advocate for our debate, for our dialogue. Certainly, we at CIC, and I certainly do not have an agenda And frankly, it would be really boring if you guys agreed with me on most points or all points. Oftentimes, when we think of information warfare, we think of tactical psychological operations. We think of radio shows and pamphlets. We think of tweets and fake news that's talked about so much in the press. These are oftentimes short-lived. They're top-down, tactical in nature, with short-term effects at best. Information warfare, though, can be far more strategic, subversive, it can have long-term effects, and it can be subtle. Oftentimes, information and influence exploits ideas and trends that already exist instead of creating new ideas and trends. It hinges on people sometimes being unaware that they're being influenced, and it can hide in plain sight, wrapped up in ideals and morals and freedoms near and dear to our heart. Unfortunately, according to many media outlets and popular literature like I talked about, and even seeping its way into some uh, doctrine, there are a number of misconceptions. We see this even in professional journals. The focus on uses of, of anecdotes, a focus on just tactical experiences. So I just want to look at four specific possible misconceptions for you guys to think about. Misconception number one is we should relegate information warfare only to traditional lines of operations, such as information operations known as I.O. or PSYOPs. And by the way, this is not an I.O. course. There are I.O. training courses in the different services. That's not what we're about with our Master of Science program. We're leveling up to the global and the strategic levels. I might argue that we can't relegate information warfare only to a few operational lines of effort or only to an appendix. That I.O. or information operations, PSYOPs or psychological operations, and public affairs, for example, those professionals in those professions, they play critical direct and advisory roles. However, it is incumbent upon all strategic leaders to ensure information strategy plays the appropriate role in any given mission scenario or any given planning. Someone goes so far, as I said before, that power itself can be seen in the psychological and the physical realms. Therefore, in our strategy planning, 
perhaps we should at the very least consider the psychological elements of power. And perhaps we can think of strategy as the art of creating power. The idea is to get more out of what the starting balance might suggest of hard power. You want to get more out of the will and ability to mobilize hard power quickly. That is lethal force. Number two of four, another possible mis misconception, is conflating information warfare only with messaging. As William E. Porter, communication scholar, says, and I quote, the belief in an irresistible silver bullet is groundless. People are not like targets in a shooting gallery. The bottom line is that a message in the ether alone is unlikely ever to have any kind of effect. At least there's not one data point in the history of humankind that suggests a message on its own will affect anyone in any way, unless, of course, there's force behind it. Angela Kudvila goes on to say, psychological operations is often misunderstood as the preposterous proposition that words can substitute for deeds. Number three of four is the idea that information warfare is new or niche. This is something that we're going to discuss uh, in Lesson 17. I'm not going to talk too much about it, and that is that information and narrative really is a foundation of civilization. At its core, it's leaders convincing people to follow them and not to follow others. It was what allowed us, that is abstract narratives, abstract storytelling, generations after we had language, homo sapiens, that, that is, that allowed us to combine and plan and to unite beyond the clan. And this defines the vast majority of human conflict, all shades of political warfare, and even in conventional, conventional war, where we see indirect strategies that necessitate deception, surprise. And the fourth of fourth is another possible oversight is relegating information warfare only to tactics, especially to disinformation and fake news. Disinformation and fake news is the technical or tactical level materialization of what we might call propaganda. Propaganda is the operational materialization of what we might consider strategic influence. And strategic influence is one of scores of information warfare disciplines. I might suggest that we should not allow media headlines to determine our focus. We should not only look to stemming adversary disinformation. By the way, disinformation has been occurring, as far as we know, since 70,000 BC. It's also called lying or partial lies for a purpose. I would suggest instead that we should look to the enduring strategic collapse of destabilizing influence campaigns in order to advance and protect our national interests. Thank you.